Vodka. 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 Vodka o'clock. Hello, everyone. It's Amber Love, and welcome to the last episode of Vodka O'Clock for 2015. And I am so delighted that my my BFF has managed to carve out a mere hour from his crazy schedule that we're going to talk all about. Andy Parks is back, and we're going to just, like, talk about his wonderful, adventurous life and what's going on in the whole year and um, talk about the things to sort of wrap up what's been going on. Excellent. So, is that cool? Is that cool yeah. with you? I'm so thrilled to be on your last show of the year. That's, that's a special yes. place. It is. And I had to, you know, I, I was trying to squeak it in before you, you left on your adventure. So, I'm, I had to prepare myself and get drunk. And I'm drinking, <laughs> I'm drinking absinthe. <laughs> well, I I started to come down with a cold, and I didn't want to be the sober, only sober one on this call. So I figured this so apple pie moonshine thing? is somewhat healthy. Oh, it kind of is. Yeah, There's I mean, an it's, apple you know, component. There must be some vitamin C in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I thought you were going to say like Nyquil or something. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, they make drugs out of that stuff. Right. Well, you're, so, you're right. I, there have been, and I'm thrilled to do this, but there have been a lot of people who seem, I, I'm worried they know something I don't. It's like I'm never coming back. There's <laughs> been a lot of people saying, I have to see you before you go. Yeah. I think Saturday, well, last Saturday night, I had five invitations to various things. I think part of what's scary, and, and I hope everybody's hearing everything okay, because Skype is saying my connection is shitty. Oh. But, um, so I think part of what's scary is the news really only covers um, air traffic when something disastrous happens, which is often. Right. And so, you know, even though there could be thousands and thousands of flights every day, you know, when there's like one uh, Russian missile going to shoot down a random airplane or something, <laughs> it's like... Well, you know, shit happens, and, and nobody wants to think about that. Right. Paris, I know, freaked out my dad a bit. He's a little worried about us going to Europe. And I, I yeah. think Americans are have allowed themselves to be tricked into having really poor risk assessment skills. Like, yeah, a friend of mine said that too. I mean, he's like, yeah, like it's we, they're just playing on your fears. Right. Everything they do. I mean, it was a hundred and some people died. One hundred and forty or something died in Paris. And uh, yeah. God knows how many people were lost to shooting deaths in America in the last week. I'm sure it was a similar number. And that's true. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't. You can't shut yourself away. So yeah, I don't worry about such things. And you know, and according to Donald Trump, you're going into the town where there's just so much radicalized activity. Right. That you know, if you're not carrying an, an AK, right. then. <laughs> yeah so let's talk about this amazing trip because i know what we've mentioned it before i think mm -hmm. and um or at least you've talked about it before that uh you're going away for quite a while it feels like a long time to me and i know it's not a long time that um you're off on this amazing adventure and you have an incredible opportunity to teach and stuff and your whole right. family's going and so what are what are the details are you like disappearing are you like yes. a spy we're going to be folded into England somehow, and we're just going to vanish <laughs> into the ether, into a sea of fish and chips. Um, yes. I my wife you to come is back a university. <laughs> I hope so. And a walking <laughs> stick. Yeah. 
um, my wife is a university professor and yeah. the university where she teaches here in Kansas has a deal with um, University of Illinois at Evansville, which operates a study abroad program in England. Basically, they own this Harlexton College in England, and they operate it as a study abroad school so that every semester they send from around the country about 120 kids to study at Harlexton. Um, and Baker, my wife's school, always sends 10 or 12 kids, and they like to send one faculty member to go along to be a mentor and chaperone and just to, to also teach classes. They need staff as well. So we've applied, I think this is the third time we applied, and they can only house a certain number of families in any one semester because the housing situation is, is complicated in this old manner. Um, and finally, they said, yeah, we can get you housing, so we're all going to go for a semester. And I got a little bit suckered. I had always told my wife I thought it would be interesting to teach, and that's maybe what I would be doing if I weren't making comics. So she said, well, would you like to teach comics while we were over in England? And I said at the time I was writing my novel and didn't know if I had anything going on after. I said, yeah, fun. And now I'm making a full-time book for Vertigo, and I'm really busy, and now teaching is going to be kind of like, oh, my God, how do I have time for this? But so it goes. I'm going to teach a course on graphic novels with an emphasis on how they're made and kind of, uh, kind of a hands-on, not a very academic approach, more of a hands-on, let's get involved, and we'll make some cartooning of our own at some point, and so on. That's cool. I was wondering if you were doing something more historical or if you were actually just going to say, hey, let's try writing our own script and or something like that, you know? Yeah, we're doing think, some of each. Yeah. I mean, we have a reading list that involves Will Eisner and Frank Miller and Spiegelman and and so on, and a lot of the great, I mean, a lot of the standard great things you might expect. Um, but we're also going to have an emphasis on the craft and how people who don't draw like Rembrandt should not be so completely intimidated by the form. Um, James Sturm has this great book about how to turn your doodles into comic art. Um, and his argument is that if you know some basic shorthand about how to tell a story visually, you don't have to draw really well to, to convey a story in the comic book format. I'm surprised at the number of colleges that are finally embracing the study of comics. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't, I never wrote a syllabus before. I didn't know how to do any of this. So I Googled it and found a lot of syllabi online. And there, yeah, there's a lot to choose from. And some yeah. of the, I, I get kind of maddened by the academic, you know, the, I don't know, there's kind of a pompous academic air about a lot of these syllabi that I found that I was like eye rolling a bit, but um, yeah, it does speak to that our medium has become somewhat more accept, ex, accepted on a you know, higher learning level, which is a good thing. So the the Vertigo book that you're working on is a crime noir style book, but you have this long history of superhero books and other pulp books like Green Arrow and Green Lantern and... Um, most recently DC's Convergence, but mm -hmm. you know, then there's the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yeah. So, uh, when it comes to this academic stigma, is it specifically that you think that the books need to be really political or 
you know, in order to appeal to the, you know, to outsiders or do they need to like, will they like superhero books or do they like think that's kind of lowbrow? Um, there, there's a tendency in the, the syllabi that I found to, to stay away from guys and types, which, which is fine. That shouldn't represent the whole genre, but there's like a, they tend to use words like contextualize a lot and ethos and, you know, it's just a lot of, I mean, you know, you've been around in academics when they start talking about literature, they tend to bring that approach approach into comics and I want to do more. Why is it effective when a great cartoonist does this kind of technique? And how is, how is a great cartoonist able to lead you through a page in a particular way? Not, not so much the grand, what is there? Yeah, it's definitely the same as with literature because uh, the, I mean, I, you know, I tend to network a lot with, with crime writers, but what's funny is that I started seeing a lot more romance writers and fans popping into my feeds. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure like it's, you know, that's just how social media is. You just need to meet one person and suddenly you're friends with 10 other people. And you know, it's like the romance genre has been just like shit upon for so long. Right. And even with romance comics, they were, oh, girls comics. So they're starting to make this credible resurgence. And um, I don't know. And it's like people had to had to be validated in what they liked. Mm-hmm. And like, you know can't you just applaud somebody for reading 20 books a year right. instead of like shitting on them for what they read. Right. And it's interesting um, because on the other side of the coin, I've been doing, I have a talk where I talk about a scene from Capote in Kansas and I show a script from the scene and then I show the artwork and I talk about how Chris and I work together to make that scene happen. And I talk about my goals in creating any scene, which involve thematic things and um in the particular scene i'm talking about there's some symbolism and how the art portrays light and darkness as opposed to how the characters are positioned things like that and i used to go give that talk to librarians and such and they would always be like whoa i somebody who makes stupid comic books is thinking about things like theme that was new to them um so yeah it's there has been a shift where at least on some scale people realize that comic book artists do think about grand ideas when they're making this stuff. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and it's one of those things where only this handful of creators get the recognition for that, you know, like, um, like Neil Gaiman and Joss Whedon and, um, but stuff that's been going on and it's just kind of there and it's in every genre. Right. Because comics is not a genre, it's a medium, and I will exactly. take that to my grave. Right. Right. I argue that point all the time. I know that other literary people get on my case because they're busy getting their MFA and like, <laughs> no, it's a genre. I don't know how you can say that because within our medium, you can tell any number of genre stories. You can tell a mystery, a horror. A, I, don't, I know. It's like saying and film what... is a genre. It's silly. Exactly. <clears throat> that's what I don't get. I don't, I don't understand this. And these are industry people. I'm yeah. like... I don't know what you're talking about other than if you think that the graphic novel somehow acts as your storyboard. But even then I know like storyboard people that will yell at you if you say that. Right. <laughs> so 
it's just a it's just a wacky weird world so are you gonna um you're gonna somehow just like take pack up your entire life and you're gonna still be working on seduction of the innocent and what slash and burn and whatever else you're working on yeah <clears throat> i'm pretty much done writing for a while okay I'm, i fin i wrapped seduction of the innocent which was always a four issue thing oh okay um I do have another third of a Jonathan Kellerman adaptation to write, but there's those deadlines are pretty loose, so I have a little time on that. Um, the inking is a hard thing. I bought a, a Cintiq companion that I can work on the road with, and I'm not going to ink digitally, but it will help me with production things. So I'm a little worried about finding things like a drafting table and getting a hold of the art supplies I need and all that. So that's a little stressful. I'm just going to have to kind of get over there and see what I can do. I'll have to find a print shop, for example. In, in Grantham is a nearby town. I'll have to find a printer that I can take my digital file. DC sends me digital files that have the pencils. And I'll have to take them somewhere and get them printed out in blue line so I can ink them. Well, I can do that right here in my office at home, but I won't have that capability on the road. So, yeah, there's some logistical stuff that will be a pain in the butt. Huh, that's interesting. I think that recently um, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor spent like weeks in Paris, oh, and yeah. she kept she kept right on working. Right. So I don't know I don't know how she did it either, but I suspect she's all digital. Maybe yeah, it's amazing. You find out more and more that people have been working digital, and somebody some people have styles where you can't really tell. Other people like have you seen the new Ron Garney Daredevil work? I've I've only seen like covers and yeah, things like that. Yeah, it's obviously digital. It, it's a little jarring to me because he he's not hiding it at all. He's not making uh -huh. any attempt to look organic. Um, but yeah, a lot of people work digitally, and you don't even you can't tell because it doesn't really affect how they work. Right, uh, and other times, uh, you know, I think the difference is is whether. For me, anyway, visually as a reader, it's the colors to me mm -hmm. that look digital or or they don't. Right, right. So um, I know that people can do that watercolor kind of ink wash look digitally and mm -hmm. fool me very easily. But then there's other colors that you see and it's like, oh, well, yeah, you just kind of like selected the, you know, the gradient tool and, you know, right. you filled this in. and um, So... I don't know if I could tell it with just a black and white, mm -hmm. if I could tell the difference. You know, yeah, thank God seeing. coloring got more sophisticated. Because in the early days when computers took over, it was, it, there was a bad period of there, like five years where people knew that they could color with a computer, but they didn't really know how to make it seem organic yet. And things looked uh, right. oddly shiny and slick. And Yeah, that was it. it everything came out with... Like, way too much glare. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how shiny and sweaty is this skin? And what, <laughs> like, fabric. Fabric was one of the things that got me. I'm like, why do you think this fabric is going to have this big white spot on this boob? Right. Yeah, not everything needed a, a lens flare kind of highlight effect on it. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was tough for Phil and I, Phil Hester and I. Our stuff is kind of flat and graphic and... It was hard to find colorists who were willing to buy into that approach. These days, there are a lot of guys who color that way. But back then, it's like, no, you don't have to make up for our lack of rendering by trying to put shiny, you know, splatters on everything. 
you can lay flat with us and it'll all work kind of harmoniously. And it was hard to find somebody who understood that. That's what Scott Hanna was saying. I had so wished that I could have teleported you. Oh, yeah. I got I got to moderate the inking panel up at the New Jersey Comic Expo, and Scott Hanna and, and Sean Martin Bro were on it. Cool. They were delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's one of the things that, that Scott was emphasizing was how somebody else can basically ruin your work. Yeah. You know, or make it so that you're not happy with it. Right. Um, you know, maybe the average reader is not going to think, oh, you know, the inking is ruined. But, you know, you're going to look at it with a much more critical eye and say, we already took care of that. We already took care of the perspective and the shadows and we we knew what we were doing. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I mean, colors are far more important than inkers now because, and not that every book has an inker anymore. There are a lot of guys who ink themselves, a lot of guys who just shoot from pencils. Right. A colorist has far more power now with computerized coloring and with advanced printing technique to make a job unreadable than an inker does. An inker can make a job ugly, but a bad colorist can really just make it unreadable. So which project is it that you're going to have to keep working on while you're uh, Slash and burn. Slash and slash burn, burn inking project, okay. yeah. And it's right, a, it's so, a really interesting book. It's um, it's, yeah. What is it? Because it just came out. I mean, it's we're kind recording. of a mystery. Basically, the lead character is this female uh, character named Rasheen, who is a pyromaniac and a firefighter. And there's a mystery going on with people she's close to dying, and it's it's pretty complicated and pretty pretty interesting. I think the the writer is a guy from. England named Cy Spencer, who I think works in a lot of works on TV a lot over there. And um, he and the penciler were very, they've been great to work with and very generous. They let me have a creator's take in this series. So that's really cool. It's the first time that's ever happened to me as an inker. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And this is Vertigo, and this is one of the strange things to me about Vertigo is I thought they basically shut down. I mean, I don't know what it was, but a few years ago I thought they were kind of done. It is weird. I don't know the whole history. I know at some point they got folded into DC proper, but they've only they've continued to have their own imprint as well. And then a lot of their tentpole series went away. You know, Scalped and Hunter Bullets and uh, the Game and stuff. The stuff they were really known for went away. And so I think since the move to L.A. especially, they've been trying to kind of reinvent themselves and um, kind of reclaim their stake in the market. But it's tough because a lot of creators, I think, who might have been thrilled to do a book at Vertigo 10 years ago are now thinking I need to do that book at Image and right. not be beholden to D.C., not give away my rights and so on. And they're there are valid reasons to do a book either place, but I, it, they have a lot more competition than they once had, did. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the, the pitching market is probably pretty tough these days. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know. I have not really pitched a, a script to Vertigo, but I know it's a process. I mean, it goes through your editor and then his boss and then her boss and then eventually Jim Lee and Dan DiDio are signing off. There are just a lot of hurdles to clear to get something rolling there just because of the nature of the company uh, structure. 
Now, while you're, you've been doing all this for 2015, because comics kind of, like you said, you were working on the novel and then mm-hmm. you got really busy with comics. So, and plus you had like your own life aside from that, yeah. where you were doing community theater right. and, and all kinds of other cool stuff. So, um, is the novel like where it, I know that, um, thank you to my friend Mario Muscar for posting. Oh, do you know Mario? Cha- a chapter. Yeah. Nice. So I know Mario from, it's so funny. I was like, I like, what does he do in posting that chapter? <laughs> but, um, I, I didn't know that you knew each other. And, um, so Mario did this fun 12 days of fiction for the holidays. Mm-hmm. And when you posted that you were on there, I'm like, wait, what is this? <laughs> and so I got to enjoy the, this chapter, um, this morning. Oh, good. And, and so it's, um, I don't know if we ever got to announce the name of the book before, but you called it Stateside. Yeah. And I know that you talked about it's for, um, you know, about men who couldn't go off to war. Right. And this particular scene, though, was about a guy who, who had been off in war and got kind of disfigured. And in the first war. Right. Like, yeah, so he became like this mafia boss or something. He felt very mafia-like anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, now he's just kind of this terrifying, intimidating presence mm-hmm. Um, so there were things that I wanted to ask you about it now that I've seen this taste of it mm-hmm. before, now that we've seen characters and everything, uh, um, the, you've given this, you know, this person, like all these specific characteristics and everything, but I am always enamored by sidekicks and secondary characters. Yeah, yeah. So for me, you know, like the most interesting part of the Lone Ranger to me was actually Tonto. Right. And now I was reading this and, you know, to me, the character that stood out to me was actually this bodyguard standing next to him who was a Native American. And mm-hmm. you, you um, I don't know if you named him after anybody, but you named him Estes Hightower. Uh-huh. Um so I was like, huh, I wonder if that's just because he has all this research, so much research in his brain from years of writing Tonto, <laughs> like where where this character came that's from. It's interesting. I don't know why I decided he was going to be an American Indian. It might There might have been a Tonto influence. Just I wanted to represent somebody who wasn't just another white dude, you know, because mainly it's... That's what you're going to get out of Mafia stories as Italian guys. Right. And, and he's not... It, he's, he's, he's not Mafia, but he's definitely kind of a crime boss um, yeah it's so, either going to be like the jewish mafia or yeah, the italian mafia. The, so so the power players in 1942 in kansas city are going to be mostly men and i when i was creating this other guy i was like it needs to be something different and african-american didn't quite feel right and then i thought why isn't he we live in the part of the world where there are a lot of tribes and so on so let's make him a indian and then i thought let's, i want to make him a really big quiet and he is kind of a tonneau presence because as Joe Ryband described Tano to me when I started writing the book, Tano is usually the smartest guy in the room. He just doesn't have to talk about it. And, Precisely. Yeah. He's the most amazing character. Right. And Hightower is kind of like, you get a feeling he always knows like three steps ahead what's going on, but he would never say anything about it. He just chills and watches and takes action when it's needed. And it, you, so you met three people in that chapter. You met McGuire, who's kind of my big pulling the strings bad guy his bodyguard Hightower, and then you met Collins, who's the little slimy, hands-on bad guy in the book. 
And eventually Collins and Hightower come into conflict and that becomes interesting because you have the little sneaky little, you know, creepy guy versus the towering uh, presence of Hightower. That was fun to write. Yeah, there was definitely a feel of their physical space. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's something because you do sort of describe him as like this hulking character and you know in a way he has these similarities with Tonto which like you said they're all the things that I loved where you know Tonto could keep his cool and would get violent when he needed to but he had all of this um, respect for um, you know for what was around him even though, even if he was being treated badly and stuff like that, and he would just choose to go like sleep out under the stars instead of sleeping in a bed and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So with this Hightower character, there was this same quiet reservation in him, but he's been fully assimilated now into, right. we know this mafia American culture where, you know, I pictured him in a suit and he took off his fedora and, um, you know, so it's like I, I pictured him, almost being like like well i said assimilated so that's kind of the yeah. right the right word yeah. i mean I, I pictured him like did he lose anything did he lose heritage at, at some point in order to have this job right i think he's a a guy who probably was not going to roll with what was going on to native americans at the time and just wanted to get the hell off of whatever crappy reservation or wherever is, and just want to, yeah, he saw it as an escape and he's going to go make his own life somehow. Now to tell the truth, I don't have a whole backstory for him. I don't know where he grew up necessarily and all that stuff. I just know who the guy is. And during my story, it's, yeah, it's definitely changed. I, I think I'm sure there are still because I've never been on a reservation, so I don't really mm-hmm. know what it's like. But I follow. I started following a couple of Native American authors on Twitter, and um, I I hope anyway that things have improved and they've there have been different like land negotiations even like this year, land negotiations saying oh look now they're trying to take this land and swap us for all of this land. And because that looks like a greater geographic area, we're supposed to be happy with that. Right. Even though like this land is smaller, but has, you know, richer resources and stuff. Right. And it's like, Holy shit. How are we still doing this? I know it's amazing. What we've seen in my part of the world is that tribes discovered, I don't know, 20 to 30 years ago that they had a resource available to them and that they could have legalized gambling on their land. Right, and that made a huge impact. Yeah, it had suddenly the tribe had money, and then you start to see after a decade or so of that, politicians like, "Mm, I don't know, is that really something we should allow? And like, come on, man, we almost wiped these people off the face of the map, and now they found a way to make a living, and you're going to try to grab that away too? Give us a break. It's it's a little bit frightening when it comes to that money and. and the way things have to be divided, if there's any truth to this, because I'll admit that I watch a lot of this stuff and learn it from fictional TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Red Road and Longmire, and at least on Longmire, the reservation has like a really big presence. Yeah. And I've um, read every Longmire book and I adore them and I cannot watch the show. The 
some of the casting just didn't fly for me. Oh, okay. So I haven't read the books yet, and I am enamored with the show. Yeah. I watch it constantly. And you know how they were saying that it's um, they have you have to authenticate your bloodline. Oh yeah. Uh, in order to get some of those um, subsidies, mm-hmm. basically. And and then I saw somebody on Twitter say something like. You know, we're the only people that are treated the same as dog breeding. Oh, God. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, right. We have something like that very close to us. In Lawrence, Kansas, about 20 minutes away from here, there is Haskell Indian College. And I assume it's subsidized by the federal government. I know that if you have a certain amount of Native American heritage, you can go there for free. And one of Hannah's friends is graduating and thinking about where he's going to go. And I asked him, he said, I think I may go to Haskell. And I had no idea the kid had any Indian heritage. And so I said, oh, what? And I don't remember if you have to have B1 eighth or 1 16th or whatever, but he's like, yeah, we have to submit proof that my grandma was this or that. And then I can go there for free. Wow. Yeah. I hope there's, I hope there's a more authentic voice now in our fiction mm-hmm. and entertainment because obviously there was a big up war with i think who was it adam sandler is that who it was i don't know some parody shitting thing he made on netflix just like the other day he released a kind of hateful eight parody and i don't i don't know much about it yet yeah i think i think that's who it was mm-hmm. um and it was on it was something that netflix pr- helped produce right. or put out yeah. you know put out first uh and um, so I read this am- amazing interview with, now I have to look up his name because I feel like such a shit. Um, he's an actor who's on Fargo, but also on Longmire, um, Zan something. Oh, is he, and, a, is he a Native American? Yeah. So did he yeah. play Hansy in season two of Fargo, maybe? Have you watched season two? Yes, that's the name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's that guy's dynamite. And I actually so, thought he maybe isn't big enough. But for me, Lou Diamond is a guy who bugs me on Longmire. And I thought that guy would have been a better right. choice, maybe. He's just scarier. That's true. He does he is he does have a very sort of scary thing about him. Mm-hmm. And so his name is Dan McLaren, mm-hmm. which is funny. It sounds like the most non native right, name they right. know possible. But he plays Matthias on Longmire. So he's um he's Longmire's equivalent over on the reservation. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so when it came to discussing this Adam Sandler movie he said that you know it was his understanding that it was more like the background actors who had walked off upset by that they felt that they were being mocked and ridiculed oh, and their heritage being you know really offended by adam sandler and he was kind of like well that's kind of what that movie was though mm-hmm. like you know none of the main cast walked off right um but what's interesting is you know that here's this actor who you know, he plays this badass and like you said, this intimidating kind of guy. Mm. And in the interview, he's like, I just want to play like a really loving family guy. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm just like, oh my God, you're so cute. Right. <laughs> it's funny how casting works. Some guys just have a face that dictates their career and you can't yeah. get past it. Now, some guys can turn that on, on its ear. Um, the, the guy who played Hannibal and he was a the villain in Casino Royale. I don't know. He's a, Nordic. Oh yeah, I've never seen either, but I know exactly the actor you're talking about. Yeah, I can he's kind of he's kind of got oh, that scary face. You yeah, know? 
But he made a movie that I watched um, that I shouldn't have watched because I was trying to inconnect it. was subtitled, so that ruined me for the night. I had to look up at the TV all the time. Uh, but he plays a movie set in Denmark or wherever where he's accused of molesting a child and, and the whole movie is about how it destroys his life even though it's a false accusation. Um, so he becomes very sympathetic and your heart breaks for him. So every now and then you can a guy like that can kind of trick you into you know, doing something that you hadn't thought possible. Yeah, I think that you just... Um... You know, like if you if you happen to have I don't know a big scar across your face, you know that you're only going to make certain roles. Right. <laughs> and um, um, they're lucky though when it comes to acting that there there's a possible of such transformation where if they are like ridiculously pretty, they can be transformed into something else. Right. Right. Um, like oh, I've never actually seen the movie because I really didn't have any desire to see it. But that movie Monster with Charlize Theron. Yeah, I saw that once. Yeah. It it was like you took like the most beautiful woman on the planet, right. and you, right. you know, and you you made her unattractive. Have I ever told you about my Charlize encounter? No, I don't think so. I didn't. You might have. I didn't but talk I, to I was her probably... personally, but okay, I, I might have been drunk at the time. <laughs> every every time I've been in Hollywood, I go to Chateau Marmont to meet somebody or to do something, and there's always somebody famous there. The first time Heather Graham walked by and paused near me, and I was like, because she looked like she just walked off a movie set. She would look perfect. I swear there was like a wind machine somewhere blowing her hair in just the right way. Um, and another time I went and Stellan Skarsgård, is he the older Skarsgård? Yeah, he's the one who's on the new, the show that I'm just watching now called River. Oh, I don't know about On this. Netflix. Oh, it's disturbing. Well, he's brilliant. And he was yeah. sitting like two tables away and I could tell he was looking at my hat. Like he wanted that hat. I was pretty sure. Because uh, at the Chateau, you can sit outside so you can keep your hat on. You just know. Oh, yeah. So once I was sitting there and there was a really pretty blonde behind my agent. So like about eight feet away from me, but in front of me. And I kept looking at her like, who, who is that pretty blonde? And she's with this dude who has a Batman t-shirt on. Who's a grungy <laughs> looking guy. And I was like, is that striking blonde and why is she with this dorky Batman t-shirt guy and we we're about to leave and I kept you know looking at her without looking you know you don't want to get caught right you know and my yeah, agent said that guy. yeah my agent said we should get a cocktail so you can look at Charlize more and I was like oh son of a bitch it's Charlize there on <laughs> I had not recognized her but she just she's so striking and the way he, she held herself was like very Amazing posture and just very kind of seemed very self-possessed, you know. And then I liked that she had this grungy little Batman t-shirt guy with her. Yeah, she was, she was something. Yeah. And I mean, just, she, she can pull it off, mm -hmm. like, you know, and that's, I assume and it's you funny love because Mad Max. I assume you've talked about Mad Max. I haven't seen it yet. What are you doing? I know. I still haven't seen it. I know it's like nominated for like big awards and stuff. Yeah, she's killer in it. Yeah, I've heard. Um, I just it's I think like I don't even know if the Blu-ray is out yet, but I it's like oh, yeah. I'm waiting. I'm a I'm a Netflix watcher, so I'm right, like, right. So I don't get to see things it's until they're like. I'd be really curious what you think if you like it as much as I did. Well, it's interesting because I really felt like the actual Mad Max movies were not that great. I mean, right. I liked the no, I, agree. I liked. 
they're cool. I like the environment. Yeah, yeah, they're cool. Like I liked the environment of them. I thought it was an incredibly like creative and landmark franchise as far as costume design and environment and stuff like that. But I was, you know, ultimately I'm like, there's like no story here. I'm like, it's yeah. just not that interesting. So, um, like the most memorable part of it is Tina Turner. Right. So, I mean, what is, well, you know, what's that telling you? And it just, the first one, when I actually saw them out of order. So when I saw the first I one, I, I was like, God, this, I'm like, this is awful. Yeah. I'm like, what is the big deal about this fucking movie? Right. So I was really surprised to see that, that the Fury Road one was getting nominated for like picture of the year. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Why? It's really dynamite. <laughs> and it's so, it's a cool action movie because it's so packed with stuff that I, I remember sitting there like 15, 20 minutes into the movie and thinking, I really need to not lose focus because I feel if I drift away for a moment, I could lose a bit of information that's really going to be important because they don't have a big exposition. They just kind of throw you into the bullshit and the the violence and all this shit going on and you're playing catch up. And you're figuring out the story as you go. So it, it's a really kind of intense experience, I thought. Yeah. So I definitely, I mean, I want to see it. I'm just not rabid about it. Yeah, or, yeah. Like, I, I know people that went, like, several times in the theater. Right. Um, yeah, I bought the Blu-ray because I was no. really, really excited to show it to my kid and my wife um, as soon as they could see it because I went saw it in the theater by myself. It was pathetic. I go in in the afternoon when there's, like, nobody there and I take a flask and get... That's when I love to go. Oh, God, I love it. I love to go at like an 11 o'clock showing and being the only one there. Right. It's awesome. I sit there and plan my drinking so I'm nice and buzzed, but don't have to run out and miss anything. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, see, those are good things to me. Like like Star Wars is out. And I... like we even bought t-shirts to wear just for, for Star Wars coming out. And I'm not like the, big, I'm not even the biggest Star Wars fan. Like I love Star Wars. I grew up on it. Right. But to me, I didn't, I discovered Star Trek much later. Mm-hmm. So to compare apples and oranges or whatever, right. I, I think that Star Trek is a better franchise as far as storytelling. Mm-hmm. But, um, nobody has Han Solo. Right. But then again, you know, they have Captain Kirk. Right. So I'm kind and of, a, I've had to realize, like, I love them both. But I'm probably more of a Trek guy as far as like what the story is about. It appeals to me more. It, it's yeah. Your daily Trek blogging has yeah. been interesting. <laughs> I've been I've been watching that. <laughs> yeah, I've been putting it on Facebook. I like pictures from each episode as I watch and talking about it. Because again, I've been inking more. I didn't ink for like five years. I didn't ink full time. I didn't get thing here or there, but I wasn't doing it full time. And after I finished the novel, I was so fried. I thought. I don't think I want to make words for a while. I think I'm going to ink again and vertigo this <laughs> job. So it's, it's nice to be able to switch gears like that. But suddenly I found that unlike writing, no work gets done if I'm not sitting in that damn chair at the drafting board. So I needed TV or something to keep me in the chair. So I've been doing a lot, you know, watching a lot of stuff and I decided I'd watch classic Trek again from the beginning. Yeah. It's funny to think how how bad some of the stuff was, mm-hmm. but you have to, if you can break it down and just look at the story and it's like, Oh yeah, there really was something going on here. Right. And it's just you know, more the, about big ideas. Star Wars has always yeah. been more about adventure and character. Trek yeah. is a little bit more about Roddenberry's philosophy of a better future and 
Right. That's what. So that's what I was saying. And like, and in fact, because the new Harry Potter trailer came out. Oh, I didn't know that. Quite a ways off. Mm-hmm. So this actually ties back into what I was talking about with with your book stateside. The newest Harry Potter trailer. It's Fantastical Beasts and Where to Find Them. So it's based on the character that wrote the monsters book that the kids study in Hogwarts. Oh, wow. Yeah. About the creatures. Mm-hmm. So it's about that, uh, that guy who created that book and he goes off to New York city. So this is the first time that we get anything Harry Potter related coming to America. Oh, and cool. uh, so back in June, JK Rowling said something about like somebody asked her like what the name of the New York or American wizarding school was and she said that she couldn't say because it would kind of give away too much Mm -hmm. because it was um i don't know so i guess it would give it would give something away and and but she also admitted that there would be indigenous magic oh and so some of these native american authors that i follow started just preemptively saying okay you have our attention and now we're really concerned because when you start mixing a real culture with fictional Mm -hmm. wizards and magic it's upsetting Mm. so they're you know they're like okay well we're paying attention we're gonna wait and see what you're talking about but just so you're aware, mm-hmm. we're now watching you right. and we're now watching and seeing what this product is. Interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, so to me, I'm like way more excited about thinking that there's a new Harry Potter thing coming out than Star Wars. Right. Because like I'm just, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to camp out for anything, first of all, unless I wrote it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it's even funny because like Chuck Wendig lives like an hour from me mm-hmm. and he writes freaking Star Wars. And he's like, he couldn't even get a signed, like, you know, like his theater, his local theater, whatever it is, like, didn't even have like, you know, a signed amphitheater seating or something like that. It's like, you have to just go to Fandango and buy your tickets like every other normal schmo. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, no, seriously, like, I'm not going to camp out for days to see something. Um, I'm constantly amazed and God bless them. The things that people are willing to stand in line for, for ridiculous I hate standing in line, so there's literally no appeal for yeah, me to do it. It's amazing. I go to every I mean, I haven't been in a while, but I used to go to Comic Con every year. And I'd be walking over to the convention to stroll in when they opened whatever. And I'd walk by this line of people that has been there for hours and they're stretched around the block. I'm like, Oh my God, who does this? And you know, like I said, God bless them. They helped make my career possible, I guess, because they're such fans, but that devotion is mind blowing to me. It is, you know, and I'm not sure where, um, where the, where the, to draw the line, like, at, right. <laughs> right. you know, like there's gotta be at some point you're like, okay, yeah, I'll get in line. Like as it is with New York Comic Con, I'll go in line an hour early for something because you can sit on the floor and they don't yell at you. Mm-hmm. Whereas I've been other places like at the movie theater where if you sit on the floor, they yell at you. Oh boy. Yeah. I'm like, well, we have like, you know, a half an hour to wait. What right. is your problem? And they're like, no, you're not allowed to sit on the floor. Like, this is ridiculous. This is what people do right. when they're in line. You know, it's like, it's not days, but come on. So I was kind of, you know, so movie theaters have soured me. Like, mm-hmm. 
you know, the, to be the, the fact that I've been like middle aged and getting yelled at in movie theaters, like it, like this is ridiculous. We we really won't go anymore unless we can go to the reserve seating place. Oh, nice. Um, there's one in Kansas City. There are a couple in Kansas City, but there's one where that's all they do. All they have in all their theaters are recliners, and they're all reserved. So, so you pick it like you're going to a concert. Exactly. So I was able to. Now we're not going to see Star Wars until Monday because we didn't do it early enough to get in over the weekend. But yeah, Monday I was able to go on and say we want these five recliners and we're going to sit here and it's pretty sweet. And then you don't have to worry about getting there plenty, you know, early and all that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and you sort of. I mean, I don't know. Are those tickets like outrageous or something? No, it's like twelve bucks instead of ten fifty or something. You know, it's. Not oh yeah, I was gonna say that's what ours are anyway. Right. <laughs> um, I don't. You know, I don't remember what the prices in New York were. I saw one of the really awful Transformers movies there. <laughs> um, but I. I mean, I've been to a theater on the New York border, and. I I got to share that story actually in my in my podcast with Tana Ford when we talked about uh, queer culture and safe spaces for queer people and I was telling her the story about how how yeah we were getting you know like my ex and I got yelled at because we we kissed each other in public oh yeah and wow. it was like are you fucking kidding it's like I'm now like middle aged and getting reprimanded in the movies right right like a child good lord. Like this is absurd. This is why I stay home and with you, my cat was, and my. Was somebody boobs. been offended because of the gender of the two people involved? We think that they just confused us because there were so many teenagers around that um, they pointed. We think that the security people may have just confused us. Oh, okay. Um, but either way, I like hauled off on the guy right. and got an apology <laughs> later. It was for a Harry Potter movie, right. no less. The only time I think I've been to something opening weekend, because I usually don't do that. Right, right. Um, but it was like one of these grand theaters, like you're talking about with these seats that were so amazing. Yeah. Like, geez, we don't have that kind of stuff out here. <laughs> you know, you got to drive an hour and a half to get fancy seats. Yeah, we're um, pretty lucky. Uh, one of the things I like about our town, we live in a smallish town, maybe four or 5,000 people. Um, but Lawrence, Kansas, which is a college town, is... 20, 25 minutes away. In Kansas City, which has downtown, which has all the downtown stuff you'd expect, but also has very affluent suburbs, is within 45 to 60 minutes away. So we have access to a lot of cool stuff, parks and museums and fancy-ass recliner theaters and all that stuff um, within a you know reasonable drive. And I always tell the wife, when we lived in Philly... It took us 20 minutes to get anywhere. It was just a much more stressful kind of driving than this, you know. Just it is, and it's 20 road. minutes to go, like, only a couple miles. Right, right. Yeah, so it's, a, yeah, that's the thing. Like, 20 minutes now, and I'm going 10 miles. But, right. you know, 20 minutes around Philly is, like, five blocks. And I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get too much into our lifestyle, how fascinating our lifestyle is. But <laughs> I people, I think people who are not in comics don't think about how, if you do comics for a living, they don't pay you more depending on where you live in the country. So it right. it helps if you live somewhere where the cost of living is a little lower. Cheap. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I've heard of people that live in these, you know, kind of like swamp towns, right. like <laughs> like Louisiana, somewhere like on the outskirts of Louisiana, because you can't be downtown because that's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's why, because now we, ha- we have the ability to just mail stuff in right. or 
email, whatever. You didn't have to, yeah. When I started in comics, you had to rush to the FedEx box. Mm-hmm. Now you just send an email with a file attached or you upload it to the company's FTP yeah, server. Yeah, FTP it. server. Yeah. And it's different because, I mean, I, you know, when you, you hear these amazing stories about how somebody would take the train into New York City an hour from wherever the fuck, either one of the islands mm-hmm. like that. Long Island, they would take a, you know, be on the train for an hour and they'd get into the Marvel office. And it's like, it sounds exciting and interesting in a way, but then I'm, it sounds like, Jesus, we have it so easy right now. Right, right. You know, like you can come out of, out of bed, make your coffee, put on, you know, put on different sweats. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's like, and the cool thing is like, um, when I had talked, I had moderated that inking panel with um, Sean and Scott, I asked them about their health because these were two like really svelte gentlemen, mm-hmm. if you will. And so what's cool is Sean was saying he lives in D.C. And he says he bikes. He oh. says he bikes. Mm-hmm. forces himself to bike every day and he bikes to kind of get anywhere. I'm like, oh, yeah, you can't really do that where I live. Right. Like we don't know sidewalks. Right. So. I mean, if you biked around here, you're risking kind of getting run over right. by char- a, usually a giant monster truck. And then they, know my, they might not find you for a week. That's true. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why, I mean, it's absurd, but I, like, if I go out for a walk, I take ID with me mm-hmm. because I'm like, well, my phone's probably not en- enough. I want someone to be able <laughs> to identify my body right away right. because that's what I think about. So I'm like... <laughs> You know, and that's if they notice me, you know, when the garbage truck goes by or something, right. I, you know, like Tuesday, whatever. it's just, it's, so I'm like, oh, wow, biking in D.C. every day. That sounds dangerous. It sounds intense, yeah. I know uh, uh, Josh Dysart lives in um, Venice Beach in California, and he rides his bike everywhere. And I mean, he gets to ride along a beach and stuff, and he's still, he's had several major wipeouts. Yeah, another, well, J.K. Woodward got, you know, he moved back to Long Beach, California, and he said the same thing. He said that he, when he was younger and he had lived there for so long, like, that's what he considers home, even though he grew up in New Hampshire. He's like, you know, Long Beach is, he's like, he would be on his bike to get any anywhere. Right. And to me, I look at people on the bike, and I'm like, why don't you have a driver's license? Right. When, like, I'm suspect of people on bikes. Whenever I ride my bike anywhere, <laughs> sometimes I've been kind of aced out of a car now because my daughter drives her and her brother to school. Yeah, which so is lovely because sure. my wife doesn't have to get up and drive them or I don't have to pick them up or whatever. But I used to have freedom during the day and now I don't. I have no car. <laughs> yeah. And every time I ride my bike to the grocery store or the post office or whatever, I'm sure people think I got a DUI. Exactly. <laughs> sure. That's exactly it. I just want to go home and write on Facebook. I still have a license. I'm just riding a <laughs> bike. It's yeah, it's just a weird thing that if I see somebody on a bicycle, I'm going to be suspect. By the way, I sorry to get off on a tangent, but when I was writing full time, especially, I like to go to the Kansas City Public Library to work every now and then. It's a uh-huh. beautiful old bank building downtown they converted into this library, and I found that I always had some kind of adventure. So one day I'm sitting in their little coffee shop, and I'm just getting ready to write. You know, I'm checking my email, whatever. And I hear behind me this guy having coffee and he's on the phone. And I become aware that he's involved in some kind of job interview situation. And so I get, I'm a nosy bastard and I start listening in. And 
he's talking to somebody and he it it becomes obvious that he's pressing a little more than he should be maybe like he's like well when can we arrange a meeting in person and how come blah 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 and for like five minutes he's kind of nudging them into trying to get a formal interview and then finally he says okay well what location would i come to and they give him some location he says well to be honest I am limited to what's available by public transportation. And there's a pause. I assume the other person's talking. And he says, well, I had some lapses in judgment last year, and I don't know, I no longer have a license. And after that, there were like 30 seconds of kind of, yeah, thank you, thank you. And then he hangs up, and he goes to the trash can and just power throws his, his cup of coffee into the trash. I was like, oh, this poor son Oh, no. He's been reduced to interviewing the you know, trying to push people into jobs at the public library where you can get free internet or something. And he's, his life has fallen apart because he got a DUI. Oh, it was just amazing, tragic yeah. slice of life that I just got to kind but of... But think of it this way. Maybe it wasn't a job interview. Maybe he was trying to arrange for a call girl. Oh, oh, well, that is cheerier. See? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love going places like that where if you're open to the experience, you can kind of soak up these slices alive and sometimes they're magnificent and sometimes they're just tragic just well somebody was saying i had to tell my mom this story because somebody on twitter which is the way almost all my conversations start since it's no longer somebody in a bar somebody on twitter said that they were sitting there with their laptop writing whatever their greatest novel of all time is and and while they were there other people are doing this, conducting their business in the cafe kind of thing, like people do. Mm-hmm. And they heard two different people in a short amount of time recite their entire credit card numbers. Oh, God. In public, because they were Christmas shopping or whatever the and hell it the was. the expiration or whatever, whatever you would need, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So my mom was freaking out because her printer died and she was in stables today. And so she went to go buy a printer. And of course they offer you, Oh, well, if you get the store credit card, then you get $50 off. Mm. She's like, okay, fine. I already feel bad. There's 20 people behind me, whatever. So she starts this whole process and the person asks for her social security number. She's like, absolutely not. I'm not giving it to you that now there's 20 people behind me. No. (laughs) And I was like, well, you did the right thing. Yeah, she's probably being you know. smart. I'm just not the kind that would really worry about that, but she's probably being smart, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, first of all, when it, you know, it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, that $50 to somebody else might have been like a ton of money. I'm like, but to you, you're okay. Right. You know, I'm like, you can deal with it. You can pay. You know, it was still like a ridiculously cheap printer. I mean, it was like $130. Like, it's not like you're spending $700 right. and had to, you know, save 50 And like, printers are a scam. It, they give you the damn printer. They just want you buying their expensive ink for the rest of your life. Pretty much, yeah. And I just, and yeah, it was just one of those weeks where it was like everything just, you know, was falling apart. Right. And it's the holidays, so it's already stressful. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my father lost his credit card the other day. Oh, dear. He apparently he only discovered it today. I don't know. But so they were trying to backtrack where the credit card might have been. And so he had to cancel that credit card. So, yeah. So it's like tis the season of joy yeah, yeah. in this house. <laughs> I'm drinking. <laughs> have you, by and, the way, I had this etiquette question come up recently. Yeah. Have you ever left your credit card or wallet or anything at a restaurant and you had to go back and get it the next day? Um, I don't think I've had to go get it the next day. I think I've, I've had to go up to the register. Yeah. Well, I've had, get it. 
I've had that had to go back the next day, and my father had that recently. And I said, "Did you tip them?" And he said, "No, oh, it never occurred to me." And I said, "I didn't know." So, I didn't, oh, I didn't think of that. Like, either. would I slip the guy ten because he was kind enough to call me and or or at least admit they had it at whole? I don't know. So I wonder what the etiquette is. I've had it happen I, with a hat too. I once left a fedora well, at a Mexican restaurant. And I went back and got it. Yeah, your hats are probably. Um have as much value as one of my credit cards. Yeah, so. I mean, to me, least, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. in that case, it's funny. I did not tip when it was a credit card. When it was a hat, I did give the guy a 10. Oh, yeah. that's sweet. I know when I worked in retail, though, I worked in this really cute little boutique that had an ice cream counter, and it was a toy store with an ice cream counter. It was a fi- an old 5 and 10. Nice. And um, we had somebody's credit card underneath the cash tray for months and months and months. Just because we waited to see if this person was ever going to come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, but we didn't have anything, like any protocol to do right. anything with it. We just thought they'd eventually come back. You know what's amazing? As soon as you said, like, I don't know what the words you said, but I, the fountains or soda fountain kind of came to mind for me. Uh-huh. And that brings back a sense memory smell thing for me. Because when I was a kid, my grandma worked at the small town, like five and dime that had a soda fountain. Like a Woolworths or something? Yeah, the small town version of that. Um, and it's where I got hooked on comics because back in the old consignment days, they didn't send, if they didn't sell the comics, they sent back half of the cover. Right. And so I got a lot of comics that had half the cover gone because they, grandma would give them to me. Um, but I remember going in there and the place had such a peculiar smell, kind of moldy, kind of, Sweet mothbally. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like and it was probably because you know there was probably dried milk under the counter. Or, I don't know. But yeah. God, as soon as you said that, this sense memory hit me, and it's like, oh, grandma, and that yeah, making me a cherry sprite and all that stuff. If I wish we had we had had stools mm-hmm. on the ice cream counter, but we didn't. Um, because at one time it probably had that, and. But it was, but it was such a cute store. And then when um, I left, the the owner sold it off immediately because she was in a business partnership with a with a you know a guy she was romantic with. So they broke up. So they ended ended that, and she she moved, and they had to sell sell the business off. So now the store I walked by there for Halloween or something, and it's completely different, and. It's like I took a picture of it, and I because like there's a three of us that are still all friends on Facebook. I'm like, look what happened to our store. Right. <laughs> it's so sad when that stuff goes away. Yeah, but I mean, and that's the way typical small towns are here. It's like even if something like that, um, like now it's the art store that was a few doors down moved into it. Mm-hmm. So. There's a few things that really last and last for, you know, if you make it 20 years, it's, you know, it's a really long time. Right. But then all of these other stores, it's just every year, as soon as that, that rent goes up, like, oh yeah, we'll give you a great deal for the first year, sign this lease and you get involved in it. And then they jack up your lease. Oh, right, right. It's outrageous. Yeah. So I, it's like, I see so many places that look like they're. It's like, oh, what a great new addition to this town. And it's like, and they're not going to be here a year from now. Right. (laughs) It's sad, but that's how every small town out here is. It's true, yeah. 
we have it some in Baldwin too. We have a few businesses that have been downtown forever, but the rest kind of, you know, are in fl- constant state of flux. Mm-hmm. You notice there are locations in every town too where it's always a restaurant and they never last more than a year and a half. Yeah, restaurants are hard. And you just want to say, just open up a jazzercise place or something. This is doomed. It's never uh, going to work. But what annoys the crap out of me is that a good indie restaurant like that is is really hard mm-hmm. to start up from nothing. Right. But then if a fucking Friday's moves <laughs> in, the place will be jam-packed. Right. Right. doesn't matter the day, time, whatever. The parking lot will be full. Right. Like, oh my God, fucking Fridays when they moved into like Flemington and everything started leaving the the downtown historic area and all went out to the highway where fucking Fridays and Chili's were Amazing. like, oh my God, I hate you so much. You remember there's a Steve Martin routine on one of his early comedy albums where he said everything from McDonald's actually comes from this vat that they have in back. <laughs> you just go, you want a burger? You want fries? Here's your change. And it just all flowed out. I always feel like when you order a cocktail at one of those chilies or whatever. Yeah. I don't feel it's ever been near real booze. It comes from some kind of malt beverage (laughs) factory. A little bit of pina colada flavoring manufactured by. Yeah. It's like a little little red number five. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So you're drinking absinthe today. What else have you been drinking lately? Yeah, and I finished. I have to ask you a personal question. Do you talk about your relationship status on the air? Yeah, I've started to. So you are involved with this person now, and do has that affected your drinking? Does he like certain things, or what? What do you? It's, it's sort of. Um, it hasn't really affected my drinking, other than because I still try to stick to like you know two a week, three mm-hmm. a week. Um, that's not happening right now because I've already had two. So you are not a person who drinks every day. I don't drink every day. Mm-hmm. I did I did try to sort of I don't know, like I used it as a reward for myself. Well, suddenly I feel kind of embarrassed. No, I I'm know definitely that you drink, a drink you, every day person. I know, but to me it's like it you have this beautiful ritual about it and I love <laughs> it. Um so to me I I get kind of lazy sometimes. So the fact that there's another person here that I can prepare a drink for mm-hmm. Since I I don't I haven't been cooking for years I haven't cooked anything except for scrambled eggs, mm. um I make a killer egg bagel sandwich, oh, nice. but other than that I I don't get to prepare anything with any kind of love in it so mm. it's just you know a matter of can I mix a good drink, so, um, because if if for whatever reason he was a non drinker I'd be like oh my god what do I do yeah that wouldn't be good you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like, how do I... You don't need don't that know. kind of negativity in your life, eh? I really don't. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I can brew you some coffee. <laughs> and it's like, and I know so, I've met some people that are like so like clean with their bodies that they won't even drink coffee. Oh, I'm like, I don't understand you. Um, So, yeah, so he totally loves my coffee and he loves my cocktails. Yeah. And um, it'll be, you know, there's... I get wrapped up in things like Pinterest and different vodka Twitters. I'll be like, Oh, that looks really good. <laughs> and I'll be like, Oh, are we out of something? Do you need something? Right. God. Yeah. Like, so, um, so I'm not really sure what our cocktails for next weekend are going to be, but, um, but he's been adventurous Oh, good. and tried, tried things he's never had before. So that's been really cool. The wife kind of, she'll direct me into a general area. Like the other night, she'd been working in the basement, clearing clutter and boxes and stuff. 
And I said, I'm going to make something to sip. And she said, no, I can't have sipping. I need, I'm thirsty. <laughs> so that night it turned into a, you know, fresh margarita with some seltzer added. So she kind of dictates the general area and then I whip something up. Yeah. Mine's just, it's like a, it's like scavenging. Mm-hmm. Like if I, if I were put on one of those survivor post-apocalyptic tribes, my only skill would be what's around that I can make a drink out yeah, of. Right. <laughs> and that's kind of it. <laughs> so I'll go through the kitchen and the cupboards and it's like, okay, what's here? But we don't have any oranges, but there's a banana. Right. Um, you know, so <laughs> sometimes that's a matter of really what's it is what's in the house. That's true, and, yeah. that's... and we're in this odd place now with a lot of things, like everything in our house. We're only going away for five months, but it feels like we're just leaving. So we're in this weird use up everything phase. Mm-hmm. So I'll be looking in the liquor cabinet like, oh, there's only two inches of rum in that bottle. We can <laughs> we can get something can done with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand that the dog is going with you, right? No, the dog is home. It, it, okay, because I was really well. going to ask you about the quarantine. It's hard to travel with a dog. Yeah. So we were really stressed about who would live in the house and take care of the dog in the house and all that. And we were willing to pay all the bills, basically give somebody a place to live. Cause I was going to volunteer. Right. <laughs> if they'd just take care of the dog and you, mm-hmm. I think you and Berkeley would do okay after he learned you were not to be messed with. <laughs> I can probably take care of a dog. And so it was tough. We were really stressed about who we would find. As it turned out, my wife had to hire somebody to teach her German classes while she's gone. That's her main thing. She teaches German language. And uh, the guy she hired needs a place. So, And he loves dogs, and he's used to difficult dogs, so everything worked out great. Wow. So, okay, that's cool. Because I thought that, it's like, it doesn't make sense. I thought that the quarantine was six months. I've heard so that. Time... Yeah, I actually don't. We knew we were not going to take him. So I know there is a quarantine period. I don't really know how lengthy it is, but. Okay. Yeah, because I was I had heard that there was maybe talk that they were doing away with the quarantine into the UK because something about the Queen wanted her dogs. Oh. <laughs> so there was like, yeah, then it's gonna then the law's gonna change. Right. But then I, I somebody that I know who recently moved from the UK to Canada, like they just got their pets wow. and it had been like I think a year. Oh my God. Like I cannot imagine like the thought of my animal being in a fucking cage. And you can't imagine. Yeah. That they get, you know, good treatment, like walks every day and all that. Oh, it sounds yeah. awful. I mean, they just think that you've left them. Right. I mean, it's, that's right. It's going to be hard. And it's I mean, quarantine. It's, it's not, I mean, like it's supposed to be quarantine. So it's not like, Oh, they're just at a kennel where you're supposed to be able to go visit because the idea is you're not infecting them with anything. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, oh, why can't just a clean certificate of their health right. be enough? Well, it has them. It is yeah. going to be hard leaving the little torp behind. Like Chris will send us photos and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I cut his hair, and I don't really expect that Chris will be up to that. <laughs> so he, he's going to be a shaggy little ball when we get back after five months. Yeah, you got to make sure that you like sh- get him completely I know, short. Yeah. Where you go. Berkeley had an amazing day today. We... He went out. He loves going for, on rides more than anything. So Cynthia went out today to get me a Sonic burrito because I'm under the weather and she's a saint. <laughs> and she said, Berkeley, you want to come? So he jumped in and they went for a ride. And the lady brought the food to the car. And she said, oh, do you want a pup cup? It's free. And we're like, what? Pup? Who? What? 
So they brought this little cup with some vanilla ice cream, and Berkeley got a little treat. Aww. At the Sonic, if you say, I want a pup cup, they bring you a little ice cream. <laughs> and his, beard, his little beard under his chin is still kind of crusty with vanilla ice cream, but he enjoyed it. Aww. Keiko got to go shopping recently, and she got to go see Santa. No. Yeah. So <laughs> she's old. and. By the way, I've been noticing yeah. her diet. What is going on over there? Yeah, she's. it's been like the last year. She's been so fussy and ridiculous that she only likes something when it's new to her. Right. So it's so for a while there, she was eating, you know, like turkey cold cuts. And then she'd be and she's like, no, I don't want to eat that anymore. Wow. But if you made like a Thanksgiving, like a fresh turkey came out of the oven, she wanted all of the turkey possible and was eating <laughs> like she had been starving for 10 years. And... You know, so the same thing with chicken. It's like, okay, but this is a day old. I don't want it. So I was, I was like, all right, what the hell do I do? And I have, I've been through this before at the PetSmart and Petco and Pet Value and stuff. So I went to Pet Value the other day. Like, I don't know what to do. I said, she ate one of these cans of food really well yesterday. But I know that she tried it six months ago and she's just going to stop eating mm-hmm. it. So, of course, the woman sold me like this bazillions of dollars worth of cat food. <laughs> And like everything from kitten crunchy food to adult senior cat insure, like this, <laughs> I mean, everything and cans and cans of food. So, of course, it is literally the same can of food that she had only in a bigger size can. And I give it to her and she won't need it. Oh, dear. Like you are just being an asshole right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't understand. And, you know, so whatever. So when she's hungry enough, I'm there's something she'll That's eat. But she's say, so yeah. she's so skinny. Oh. I mean, it just it looks like I don't feed her. Right. It's like, no, you don't. What you don't see is the four plates I've now thrown out right. of completely edible food that kitties starving in alleys would eat. <laughs> How <laughs> old the cat are we eat. talking about? She's old. She's like 15 or oh, so. Oh, she's in total. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry to clutter your airwaves with foul language. They're used to it. They're totally used to it. (laughs) Yeah. So, but what's been funny, though, is that since I've been catering to her and trying to bring up different plates of food on, on like, a bi-daily, like, every twice daily Mm -hmm. basis. Okay, try this. Okay, try this. Okay, how about this? So, she hasn't wanted to go downstairs, really, which is bizarre, unless I'm not home. So it's been interesting. She's been as confined as I am, like staying just in. We ca- I kind of I, like if I'm left to my own devices, I stay in one room. Like I have, I go down and I visit the kitchen, and that's it. Right. But it's like if I my TV, desk, bathroom, like that's all I need. But um, she, if she has the whole house, and I'm, and I'm like spending time in the whole house, right. that's different. But otherwise, she's just asleep. She's She gets down like every half an hour to go get water. Oh. But she just comes up and she'll go to work. She's a harder worker than I am. <laughs> she makes me feel bad sometimes. It'll be six o'clock in the morning and she'll be up on the desk. Oh. Like, wow. where are you? Yeah. She just, I mean, she's great about that. It's really funny. I'm like, no, Keiko, I'm watching the news. Right. And she'll be like, it is time to work. So, and she goes and she jumps up on the desk. 
My, I'm sorry, this sounds like I'm interviewing you, but I want to ask you one more thing. My wife gave yeah. me a symbol just now, like I need to go do something. But oh, okay. I want to know what you wrote for November. Did you do a, a new mystery? Did you revise a mystery? What did you do? Oh, it was a sequel to the previous one. Oh, cool. So I at least had familiarity mm-hmm. in it that a couple of the main characters <coughs> were fleshed out and they were the same. Right. Um, and I was it was it was interesting um did you ever watch the show dead like me no i think it was on sci-fi for a while i'm not really sure where it started um and i think it only had two seasons it's a really funny show is it a but funeral home it's or... about kind it's about grim reapers oh okay this girl is a temp and she's killed in this really bizarre fashion, like an airplane blows up in the sky and the toilet seat from the airplane comes down and hits her and kills her. Right. So she becomes a Grim Reaper. But the Grim Reapers are divided up um, based on the type of death. So she was with the ones that had to do with accidental death oh, okay. or something. Yep. So like if so like, you know, if something fell and crushed you or mm-hmm. if it was a car accident, things like that. So they went through like, there are only like five types of death and I can't remember all of them, but I remember something about, um, about in the accident phase, like being pushed and crushed as a type of, of death that would be covered. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, you know, so I've been reading this book about forensics. Oh, God. I'm like, Yeah. It's, so it's been it's been a weird few months. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading all about these ways that people die and um, and symptoms and things that would happen. And I I'm really a big fan of poisons, but I was like, oh, I just did poison. Mm-hmm. Like, what else can I do? Like, I know poison was sort of like Agatha Christie's thing. It was like poison every single time. <laughs> and um, so I'm like, well, what else can I do? And I'm like, I gotta have I gotta have somebody like. Pushed. I just, for some reason, it was like pushed or crushed. Right. Term, like, you know, like, I, I and so I, I was like, all right. So I had these um, very much, obviously, like things that I've seen and whatever is that companies spend a lot of money spending, sending their top employees like off to these um, nice retreats where they do like a couple hours of work a day yeah. and then they party all day right. the rest of the day. So I basically had something like that happen where I'm like, okay, so they're going to encounter this, you know, she's going to go to work as a massage therapist hired by this big pharmaceutical company mm-hmm. or cosmetics company. And then the CEO is going to get killed and it's going to be, you know, like, oh, but did he really, ki- you know, get killed rock climbing or, right. but it, so the, yeah, so it's a follow up to the, the previous one. Nice. But, and what yeah. what was your word? Is the goal to do fifty in November? Fifty thousand. Yeah, so I so I hit fifty for um, November mm-hmm. and kept going until I felt like it was at the point where I could revise. So I started revising at sixty six thousand. Oh, cool. Okay. Because I figured, all right, well then I can go back and like sort of figure out where things need to be right. padded right. or explored or whatever. And then a good friend of mine was nice, and she's like, hey, she's like, if it's not 80,000 words, who gives a shit? She's like, especially if you're not going to self, you know, if you're only going to self-publish and you're not going to market this stuff, she's like, nobody's going to care if it's 220 pages versus 200 Yeah, pages. so don't kill yourself about having to add it. Yeah, she's like, 
She's like, go for 200 pages. You're fine. Right. I'm like, all right, 200 pages works for me. I think my novel ended up after revisions was like 103,000. I think it was like 113. And then they, you know, you strip away things and simplify here and there. And it got down to 103. Words or pages? Uh, words, 103,000 words. Words, yeah. okay. Yes, that's pretty. Which meaty. is a pretty, yeah. It's like a substantial novel. People always ask me pages, and I have no idea. Uh, it's just kind of big, but I think. Well, it's weird because in the Kindle books, you don't know page numbers. <laughs> right. Yeah, I look down. It gives me this position thing at the bottom of my Kindle. I don't know what the hell it's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just started reading Josh Stallings' Young Americans, and I know that I'm like twenty four percent. Yeah, like, I don't know what that what that Have page you, is. I know I'm twenty four percent. The percent used to bother me. I used to look down and say, "Well, that's annoying. I don't want to know that." There's only yeah. this many percent left. But then I thought, well, that's stupid. If I were holding a real book, I would know that. Yeah. Because I'd be able to look at the book and see. So, yeah, I kind of got over it. So I, I was feeling, I'm starting to feel better about self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Mainly yeah. because I've talked to so many people whose great books I've read <laughs> that have been rejected by agents. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Well, that's so, where I am. I've I've been rejected by, I don't know, five or six now, and it's with three yeah. people now. It's just kind of a long process, and I may end up getting some. And, you know, sometimes self-publishing is what you do, and it stays that way, and it's fine. Other times it leads to deals, and you never, I mean, you just don't know. But at some point yeah. you have to say, i got to get this fucking thing out there. I wrote it. I want people to have it. I think, you know, and it's, I get a little bit into the, um, how do I say it? Like the the inspirational, motivational aspect of things. Like, you know, there's the this old quote that the only person that can write your novel is you, even though like mm-hmm. everything is reductive of something else. Right. But um but it's true, you have to have some faith in your own work. Right, right. So whatever. So I want my stuff out there. I've been rejected, I don't know, six or seven times. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. I'm okay with self-publishing if that's what it takes because now I've seen the people who self-publish. Right. And some people who have been traditionally published and just got fed up with this shit. Right. You know, like there's no more marketing budget. There's no more, like you don't, you don't get big advances anymore. So there's all, there's literally, you can do everything yourself if you have that kind of, I don't, if it's the, it's a thought process or it's just a matter of not being shy, but you have to be able to promote your own stuff the way that publishers used to. I mean, nobody's going to get a a TV commercial like James Patterson's next book. You know, there's like four or five authors at best that get TV commercials. Well, I think it's just as much in publishing now, it's just as much about how you can promote your book. Like um, I heard Arnie Lang, he's a comic who used to be on the Stern show and he was talking about, I, I pitched my last book and they were like, well, can you get on this show and talk about it in this show and this show? They want the marketing built in before they even sign a deal. They want you to be, you know, have access to a certain marketplace that I feel like publishers use, publishers used to take care of that for you. Right. And now they want it built in kind of. So that's, I've actually seen that in at least some agents who are willing to say that up front, like you need to, you know, they look at your follower count. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. And I'm like, well, nobody's going to follow me until the book is out and other people start talking about right. it and I'll get some fans. Like, but you need to sort of like almost already be somebody. Right, right. And, you know, I think for people like you who at least have 
a familiarity in comics, right. it's, I, I, you know, I, you'll be like, hey, people, if you like my Capote in Kansas, mm-hmm. check this out. You know, you have some sort of some crossover right. where people might follow you along the way. Yeah, I think it helps make my query a little more appealing that I can say, I've written this, I was nominated for this, or right. I worked with the Russo brothers on this, or I worked with Jonathan Kellerman. I'm hoping it'll open a door somewhere. It hasn't really happened yet, but but even if it doesn't for the for whatever for the traditional publishing route, mm-hmm. it'll it will for the fan level. Right, right, right. And that's uh, because, like I, I mentioned, Josh Stallings a second ago, and it's um, he's been on the show before, and he, and we're, we're going to be talking soon. Um, his latest book, I'm loving so much more than his previous stuff mm-hmm. because it's a it's a real different it's a heist book. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I I know m- much more people that I can recommend this book to than I can his other right. work, and he's I didn't I completely didn't realize before that he was an author publisher type a self publisher uh-huh. because um, when I was hanging out with him at BoucherCon which is like this big fancy convention mm-hmm. of crime writers <laughs> I was sitting there like just hanging out and people just kept coming up and lining up to meet him like he was the fucking godfather i was like i don't get this like who are you are you famous and um you know it's one of the things i'm like how did you how did you do this right and he's like i don't know but it's you know one of his books got nominated for an award so all of a sudden people knew who the fuck he was (laughs) you know is boucher always in the same place no, they move it oh, okay. every single year. So it's a little bit hard to tie down mm-hmm. and figure out because the um you like uh the one year they had it up in Albany which I could drive to. Oh nice. But you know other years they've been in like St. Louis and California and you know so I don't I don't remember right. where the hell they're going to be for next year. Right. Oh crap, I'm getting my second warning so I guess I get, I need to go make a dinner or something. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I'm sure. But um, thank you for, you know, having one of your last hurrahs be here on on Skype. Ah, it's so my pleasure. Billy, it's nice to just chill and chat for a while because I feel like there's such a list of things to get done in the next. I did the math today and it's like 17 days. <laughs> oh, God. Like, no, but I still have to put in the storm door and finish inking this issue. And I guess there's a packing involved when you go somewhere for five months. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just think of all the London fog things that are going to be out there. Right, right. And apparently, <laughs> uh, you might enjoy this. I'll let you know how they are. Apparently, England has these things called charity shops, which are so much better than what we think of as like Goodwill or whatever. Like you can buy actual quality clothing at these places. So they oh, encourage you not to overpack because it's better to just buy stuff when you're there. So I'm I'm excited about it. Oh, cool. Yeah, my, grand, my grandfather was uh, a London fog wearer nice. so the, the trench coats yeah, and the yeah. hats and stuff so um yeah so i expect some swanky pictures all right will do all right um and i hope you're feeling better soon. thank you so much me too all right everybody so you've been listening to me and andy parks ramble for a really long time and i appreciate it so much because we're wrapping up 2015 and he's had a bazillion books out for this year so go check out his comics lineup and hopefully stateside is something that you can read soon. If not, go to the link for Mario Muscar's 12 Days of Fiction, and you can at least read one of the sample chapters, and it's a lot of fun. And in that weird kind of creepy post-war noir way. 
different kind of fun. Um, so good luck, Andy. Thanks. Thanks so much, dear.